0: Babies are scary, right? I mean, September 9th, 2021, something happened in my life that was probably one of the scariest things I've ever faced. I became a Gramps. Now look at this picture. She is so scary, right? Can't you tell? Like, I guess the only thing I'm really scared of with her is is saying no to that pretty little face. But the person that we want to study today, King Herod, uh, is somebody who was scared of children or at least of of infants or maybe just one infant. Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 23 says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. What did I notice right away? It says Herod was troubled. Now I'm I'm somebody who likes to work with the narrative and understand and try and imagine the scene. So I, I don't know if the wise men came to Herod, but I wonder what the conversation might have looked like. The wise men say, well, where is he who has been born, the king of the Jews? Excuse me? Uh, You must be mistaken. I am the king of the Jews. I may act like a big baby sometimes, but I can assure you, I am a grown-up king. Wise man. For we saw his star when it rose. You saw his star? He has a star? I, I don't have a star. And this star led you here to Jerusalem? And why did you say you came? Wise men, and we have come to worship him. (sighs) Worship him? I see. Uh, Just give me a moment, and then I can just see the thought bubbles. Okay, no, this is serious. I've heard about this Christ, this Messiah that the Jewish prophets have talked about. Uh, Supposedly, his arrival has been prophesied in these writings, and uh, from the line of David. Hmm, Rome set me up to rule here, so I have to manage this well. These Pharisees, after all, are such a pain in my sit down. And they already see me as a foreigner. Even though I'm Arabic, I am actually a practicing Jew. Come on. I'm sure they would love an opportunity to install their own little baby king of the Jews so that they can manipulate him to be whoever they want him to be. You know, the more I think about this, This feels like a declaration of war to me. I mean, I've been the unchallenged ruler of Judea for 30 years, and I have no, do you hear me? I have no intention of giving that up. I've dealt with potential rivals before. Now let me see, what was the count again? Is it one wife and three sons that I've dealt with, you know, dealt with in the past? Or have I lost count? Anyways, I'm sure we can find a way to deal with this. Diaper, baby. Uh, By the way, Wiseman, thanks. I'll get back to you. And so the scheming begins. First, he has to find out where the ruler was born. Finds out that it's Bethlehem from from the religious leaders. That's that's a strange place for a king to be born, but hey, whatever. Now, we need to get our friendly neighborhood Wiseman involved. So, uh, Wiseman, when did you say the star showed up? What was the time? And see, here's the thing. I love what you guys, you wise men are doing. It's, it's such a great way to welcome a new baby. I mean, a new king of the Jews, in fact, so good. Uh, and, and I was thinking about it. Sometimes I suffer from FOMO. That's something that's going to mean fear of missing out someday. And I think I would actually like to welcome this king and worship him too. So so if you could go and search diligently and try and find him. And then when you do, can you let me know so that I can go and worship, you know, have a good worship first and then come back and then tell me so that I can go have a good worship as well. Um, Sound like a plan? Okay, off you go. Have a great trip and uh, see you when you get back. Plan firmly in place. Problem to be eliminated shortly. Now, now what is Herod doing here? He's doing what mankind, you and me, is prone to do. He's seeking to hang on to and maintain, grab a hold of power and control. And as I look at scripture, that's something that we've been prone to do from the very beginning, Genesis 3. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve, what was the bait? It wasn't an apple. and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Translation, you can be the master of your own destiny. Set up your own kingdom, be like God. You know what? The way I see it, that's way, way, way above our pay grade. But it's so intoxicating. But ultimately, power and control is an illusion. And Herod is about to come face-to-face with that cold, hard fact. The control that he thought he had was not the control that he thought he had. What he thought was ultimate power and control was limited, temporary, fleeting, and almost impossible, yes, impossible, to hang out onto ultimately. In contrast, this new king, still in diapers, or maybe swaddling clothes or whatever they used in those days, was not limited, was not temporary, was not fleeting in his power or authority. I love what Colossians 1, 15 to 17 says in this regard. It paints a powerful picture of who Herod was dealing with and of the kingdom that God was setting into motion. It says, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, see Herod at this point, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In short, Herod was completely outgunned. So if this was a declaration of war on his power and authority, basically I think he had brought a knife to a gunfight or probably even more suitable, piece of spaghetti to a nuclear attack. He was completely outmatched. How do I know? Well, if you read the story, you can see it right away that his plan went sideways. It just simply didn't work. Verse 12 of Matthew 2 says, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod they, the wise men, departed to their own country by another way. No spies, no leaks, just the almighty God exposing Herod's plan and thwarting his schemes. Just with a little dream. It's almost like God just did a little flex. So then Herod's response, okay, if you wanna play that game, I can raise the stakes. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Jeru- in Bethlehem and in that, all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod decides it's time to pull out the swords. You know, I was thinking about this last week. And in the context of being a new grandfather and, and what that scene must have been like, you know, when you put names and faces into that scene, it's it's devastating. I was sitting there actually in Nickel Hall a couple weeks ago thinking about this, probably when I should have been listening to the sermon, but I was thinking about this, and and I started to weep, to think what it must have been like to have someone march into the house to grab your infant child and either kill him in front of you or take him out of the room and do it there and who knows, maybe just toss him in the corner. That's a desperate man stooping to desperate measures to try and hang on to a control that he perceived that he had. And he would stop at nothing. It's brutal. He placed, he did actions that destroyed the lives of families that had nothing to do with the situation other than being in the wrong place at the wrong time in the hands of somebody trying to hang on to something they couldn't hang on to. And in the middle of this brutal carnage, God shows Herod, again, how little control he actually had. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Herod... You lose. You fail. In the midst of all the horrible, tragic mess of the lives you've just ruined, you still didn't have the control. The new king of the Jews lives. The kingdom of God remains. But there's this one other piece. By following through on his schemes and by using his sword, sadly... Herod was actually fulfilling what God knew in advance would happen. He was fulfilling prophecy. Talk about feeling like you're not in control. You just fulfilled a prophecy? Verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, and and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Sorry, Herod. God's plan and his foreknowledge cannot be thwarted. And then I suppose the final nail in the coffin for Herod, for his perceived sense of control, (laughs) he died. Yeah, yeah, I know, it's a terrible pun. But if you ever want evidence that we as mankind are ultimately not in control, just go for a walk in a graveyard. They are finite. Such such a brutal and sad story. And so after all this, I just wanna say, hey, Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night and let's pray. What a brutal way to end a Christmas sermon. Or we can go back again and look at the kingdom that Herod was trying to resist and destroy. One of the questions that I've been thinking about as I thought about this part of the sermon was just this one question. Is this king, this new king, worth following? Well, let's go back to Colossians 1. We read a section from 15 to 17 before, but let's go to 13. What does it say about Jesus? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Or verse 21, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You see, this king is inviting us. Come. He's not... Forcing us. So, this is an inviting king. He says, Come, first of all, be restored to what my original intention was. Because of the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of this king, we are invited, according to Colossians 1, to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness, to be transferred into the kingdom of the one who made all things and holds all things together, to be forgiven of all our sins, past present and future, to be declared holy, blameless, and above reproach before the supreme ruler of the universe. Full participation in a kingdom of a king who reaches out to us in love. Come. Come again. Come partner with me is another invitation. Come partner with me in making this kingdom a reality. From the very beginning, partnership was God's plan. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So it was there at the beginning. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, what does Jesus do? It still is his idea to partner. 28, 18 says, Matthew, says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go. You could say, you go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then this part. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm not telling you to to go alone. I'll go with you. That's partner. Come. And then the final invitation that I find here, come follow my example of surrender. In Philippians chapter 2, Jesus' example of selflessness, a king, a selfless king is shown. or hold a sword over our heads to get us to participate in his kingdom, he surrendered himself so that we could be in fact a part of his kingdom. His invitation comes with the the cost paid by him. And so I'm invited to be, to, to a king, I'm invited by a king who invites me to surrender to him to surrender to his authority, his love, his direction, his guidance. He knows I can't be the king of my own kingdom. He never meant for me to be the master of my own destiny. And any attempt to do so literally is just fooling myself. And it ultimately will end in pain and heartache. And so as I was preparing for this, I I found myself asking this question. I found myself wondering what would have happened if Herod would have, instead of sending the wise men on a mission, scheming, if he would have gone with them, and if he would have gone to do what they did, if he would have chosen to accept the invitation that we're talking about. What did they do? Verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know, we'll never know. But I'm pretty sure the story would have been been different. And then I found myself wondering how much I am like Herod, trying to control my own little kingdom. You know, scheming to make sure nothing or no one stands in the ways of my perceived right to self-determination, autonomy, and my own agenda. Whether unintentionally or maybe even intentionally, I'm bringing pain. And even carnage and devastation to the lives of people around me in the process by my struggle to maintain control am i ignoring the invitation in favor of my own plans and schemes and then this thought what if instead what would it look like if i saw every day as a gift from the one who created all things The one who is before all things and who holds all things together. The one who invited me to be holy, blameless, and above reproach. The one who invites me to partner with him. The one who modeled surrender and invites me to do the same. What if in response to the gift that he gives, I saw every day as an opportunity to worship him with whatever I have? And what if I saw every day as an opportunity to surrender my agenda to his agenda Even if it cost me, if I did that, what would he ask me to surrender to him? I was thinking about that in preparation for today. And for me, right now, if I'm honest, it would be my finances. You see, finances to me have been something that have always represented some form of security you know, if I have money, I should be okay. I can I can I do things I need to do. If there's a problem, I can try and fix it and so on. You know, I've been doing a little bit of part-time work on the side and, and for the first time in a long time, I have extra money. And how many times have I said, you know, Lord, if I had some extra money, it'd be great. It'd be so much fun to be able to give more or to, to meet needs more that kind of stuff. But it's I'm finding it interesting how now that I have a little bit of extra money, how hard it is for me to give up the security of that because money gives a false sense of security and it's an easy trap so I'm asking a simple question and it's one I'd love to chat further with you about if you ever catch me in the hallway or go for coffee what would it take for me to start on that path to surrender this area of my life more to come I guess And then I suppose there is the FOMO question. Do you remember fear of missing out? What will I miss out on if I don't surrender?